You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. Well, uh, Jonathan actually deserves quite a bit of concrete uh, thanks, or there's a real concrete link between how my wife, Nicole, and I uh, actually ever got married. We did meet in Jonathan's home group, Jonathan and Caitlin's home group, but uh, I actually asked Jonathan's... um, uh, permission before I even asked Nicole out because I didn't want to mess up the dynamics of our home group. Um, he didn't say yes, by the way. He said, let's pray about it for a month. <laughs> so you better believe that a month to the day later, we went for coffee a second time. So, Yep, uh, as Jonathan said, uh, actually, I think we got a picture. I'm not sure if it was up there already or not. I missed it if it was. There's a picture of my family. Uh, my wife's name is Nicole, um, our eldest daughter. Her name is McKinney. Uh, we named her McKinney because my wife and I were married in, in McKinney, Texas. My mum always says, good thing you guys weren't married in Fort Worth. And, uh, and we just wanted a concrete uh, memory of, of the good things that God did there. And then my, uh, 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 McKinney's five and then Ivy's three. So uh, I want to be able to um, open the Bible and I want us to think about it this evening. But I just want to be able to clear away some of the distractions that are probably... Uh, coming to the front of your mind right now, like for example, you're, you're probably thinking, he's not from around here. And uh, you're right, um, I'm from Tyler. No, I'm just joking. I'm from further south, I'm from Australia. The funny thing is I lived in Canada for a while too, so my, my accent's kind of all messed up. Some people think it's Scottish, some people think it's South African. When I was in Canada, <laughs> someone said to me, are you from the south? And I said... Yes, I am. Just a little further than what you're thinking. Um, I was involved in a farm accident when I was three. That's why I have these crutches over here. And so although I think that they are very fashionable, um, there's another reason that I, I keep them with me. I moved, uh, I've been in and out of Dallas, back and forth, since 2006. That was the first time I came here, but things took a turn for the slightly more permanent in 2012 when I met my wife. Just over there in what used to be called the AWV, what's now the Steve Harden Fellowship Hall, which you have to go through now, where there was a bunch of debris until recently to see it. Uh, that's where we met. We got married in 2000, and oh, I shouldn't have set myself up for this because I didn't think about it, 2016. And uh, yeah, like I said before, we have two kids. Northway has been just a super important part of our, um, our journey. It's where we met, but it's also been... Uh, this, this group of people, this body has been and it's such an important part of us, understanding who God is, understanding the gospel better. So it's just a ridiculous pleasure, ridiculous honor to be able to speak here um, this evening. As I've been preparing for, uh, for my sermon, I just feel really overwhelmed in lots of ways. Um, I feel like um, the truth that we're going to be hitting on this evening is just so huge that I couldn't possibly communicate it to you. And I think that's actually accurate as I read the Bible. So I'm just going to, we're just going to take a few moments of silence. If you could pray for me, but also just for your hearts as well, that my mouth would be clear, but your hearts would be open. And then I'm just going to launch into it here in a couple of, a couple of moments.
Well, soon after I made my very first move to Dallas back in 2006, um, I had to make a trip out to Fort Worth, and I really have no recollection of why. All I remember is I found myself in Fort Worth, not knowing the, the Metroplex hardly at all, having to make the eastward trek back. And what made it particularly scary was this in the, was in the era, at least for me, of pre-GPS, pre-smartphone. So I knew I had to drive across on I-30 and I knew I was looking for I-35. And I can just tell you that I was very relieved when I came past the exit to I-35. I will say that it came quite a bit sooner than I was expecting, but because it was one of the few things in the Metroplex that I knew, I took that northward exit up 35. That began the most frustrating, I don't know, five hours of my life as I drove up and down I-35 trying to find something that looked familiar to me. Eventually, I became so frustrated that I pulled the car over and uh, luckily in the car, I had something kind of like a GPS, uh, except it was made of paper and it didn't have a blue dot showing you where you were. They used to call it a map. And I opened up the map and what I realized as I opened up the map is that there's an I-35 West as far as well as an I-35 East. And it wouldn't matter how much I drove north and south on I-35 West, I wasn't going to find Lover's Lane. I wasn't going to find Mockingbird Lane. I wasn't going to find any of these few places in the Metroplex that I knew about. See, the need that I had before I even realized it was I had a need to be oriented to where I was in the world. I want to suggest to you this evening that 2020, in all of its... Um, angst and all of its difficulty has very potentially, very likely disoriented you as well as to where you are in space and time. Um, and so the good news about that is that um, we have time to pull the car over and to see where we are. And in fact, that's what the church does every year at Advent. That's the time of the year that the church pulls the car on over and says, look, where are we in space and time? What are the things that we should be hoping for? What are the things that we should not be hoping for? Where are the places that we should turn? Where are the places that we should not turn? And so we are going to look this evening at Matthew chapter 16. So if you can open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16 and turn to Matthew 16, 13. The really cool thing about the book of Matthew, as you look there, is I believe Matthew was actually written to a group of people who needed to find or to, needed to be reoriented where they were in space and time as well. And we're going to get into that more and more. We're, a, we're in the midst of a, a series, an Advent series, three weeks ago, Shay told us about and introduced us to the idea of the kingdom and then the fall of the kingdom. Two weeks ago, Chef Brady Goodwin uh, whetted our appetite for the promise of the kingdom. And then last week, Matt Younger um, led us in the anticipation with Israel of the coming kingdom. This week, we're going to look at the, um, the inauguration of the kingdom. Next week, we're going to look at the consummation of the kingdom. So Matthew 16, 13, I'm going to read there in just a second. But for now, put your finger there. And let me give you just an important bit of background that you're going to need to know as we read in Matthew 16. And to do that, I want to give you background that goes all the way back to the beginning. Because in Genesis chapter 1, 
what we see is God created the heavens and the earth. And the way that God is depicted in Genesis chapter one is that he is a king. He is a king who is a good king, who is a creating king. We know he's a king because when he speaks, it happens. We also know that he's a king because he has a garden. And in, in antiquity, the only people who had gardens were the kings. But what's very interesting is in Genesis chapter 1, 26, I'm going to read this for you. God says this, Let us make humankind in our image after our likeness so they may rule. Interesting. Interesting because God is depicted as ruling up until this point. And so the question we need to ask is, well, why did God create people to rule if he was ruling already? Did he want to take a holiday? No, I don't believe that's the picture that we get in Scripture. I think what we see instead is that God loved what he was doing, bringing variety, beauty, color, abundance, flourishing. And I think he wanted to include others and invite them into that joy. And so God created some under kings, some under rulers, some vice regents, some administrators to do this with him, to share the joy of this amazing job that he got to do. And so if you feel sometimes like, man, I feel like I was just made for more, the answer is you were. The answer is you were. And part of the reason you might feel some angst that you were created for more is because corporately we rejected that purpose almost as soon as we received it in our creation. Humanity turned their back and instead of bringing life and life abundantly, we brought death. Instead of bringing honor, we brought shame. Instead of bringing purity, we brought guilt. One of the unbelievable themes of Scripture is that at that point, God didn't just throw the human experiment in the trash can. One of the most amazing things is that God decided to pursue us, to pursue people. When I have a pen that doesn't work, I just throw it in the trash can. But God instead, he pursued us and he sought to redeem humanity, not just to save us from our sins, although that's very, very, very important, but to save us from our purposelessness, to hand back to us the purpose that he had created us for in bringing life and life abundantly along with him. And so we have um, lots of cool scriptures that look forward to a king who's going to come. But not only is he going to come, he's going to reestablish the under rulers, the vice regents, the under kings, the administrators. So we have passages like Isaiah 32, 1 and 2, where it says, look, it's looking forward, prophesying, look, a king will promote fairness, officials will prophesy will promote justice. It wasn't just about the king who was coming. It was the new administration that he was going to put into place. Of course, about 400 years right before Jesus, the prophets who had been prophesying about this king and becoming more and more specific about what he was going to be like, they suddenly went silent. They went silent, and then soon after they went silent, Israel lost their independence and so they found this longing that they had for the coming king growing deeper and deeper. Their angst and their desire for him grew stronger and stronger. And right around the time of Jesus, that reached 
feverish pitches. We have history of many people who came along and claimed that they were the Messiah. Um, And uh, Matthew, I believe, wrote his book to the early readers to orient them not only about those early claims on messiahs, but to help them understand some new things that had come into the world through the true Messiah, Jesus Christ. So let's read something interesting. Uh, Sorry, let's read. Yes, it's interesting. Let's read something interesting. Let's let's read something boring this evening. No, let's, let's open the scriptures and look at Matthew 16, 13, and we're going to see how Jesus responds to Peter claiming that he is the Christ. He is the one who has been um, promised from old. Matthew 16, 13 says this. Now, when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, let me just quickly explain to you about Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi was an evil place. Evil place in the center of the worship of Pan. Pan was a f- the fertility, f- fertility gods, god of the, of the shepherds. He was half goat, half man. And without going into details, we can say that it was the worship of Pam was disturbing and disgusting. Celebrations to Pam involved worshippers working themselves up into a godless, hopeless frenzy of debauchery. So English actually still has memories, a memory of this in the words like pandemonium and panic. Um, So let's keep reading. Now, when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's an audacious claim. That's hitting at a very emotional um, an emotional level for the people at this time because they've been longing for this king. They've been longing for someone to, who would finally come and fulfill those promises. They've been longing for someone to, to release them from the political tyranny of Rome They, in fact, became one-eyed and they only saw that one part of the promise. They missed so much more, but they were waiting for it. And so now here's Peter and he's claiming, you are the Christ. What's Jesus going to say? I imagine, imagine the early readers are like, oh, what's going to happen next? I imagine the disciples, when Peter said it, are, oh, he said it. What's going to happen now? Let's keep reading. 17, and Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. For flesh and blood have not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Peter gets it. Peter understands who Jesus is. Now, granted, as we keep going, I think we see that Jesus needs to hone his understanding of who the Christ is a little bit. But Jesus affirms Peter and there's this play that takes place because Peter has just said, you are the Christ. And then Jesus says to him, and you are Peter. Now we miss a bit of the force of that in English because Jesus just renamed this guy, Simon, Peter, the rock. 
And so it really would have sounded a little bit more like this originally, I am the Christ, I am the promised Messiah, you are rock, and on this rock I will build my church. I think we get clues from the rest of the New Testament that Peter is the leader of the disciples in this way. Jesus is saying there is a new administration coming, and you guys are the part of this church, this new administration, and Peter, as the leader of these 12, I'm building this on you guys. Jesus says something absolutely mind-blowing that I just want to return to in a second, but check this out. Listen to what Jesus says. I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. This is amazing. Let's get a little bit more context, and I'm going to come back to that. In verse 19, Jesus is still speaking to Peter. He says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. We can miss it on the first reading here, but I believe that what we see is in this passage an incredible amount of language of underruling administrators, vice-regents. The idea of, king, uh, of the keys of the kingdom. I think this picks up on an idea in Isaiah 22. In, in Isaiah 22, there's a story of a master who leaves, but leaves his um, administrator in charge of his household. And if I understand it correctly, the keys are likely keys to the storehouse to provide for the people who are in his household. When Jesus says, I'm giving you the keys of the kingdom, he's saying, I'm I'm bringing you in on the provisions that I've made. I'm getting you to administrate in this new entity that I'm building upon you. The language of loosing and binding is common in rabbinic literature, for standards and rules that the community held to. Jesus, I believe, is saying, you guys, you specifically, Peter, but generally, you guys, I'm building a new thing, and you are the administrators of the new order that is coming, the new kingdom. I think um, the, the original readers of, of uh, Matthew's gospel are picking up some things that maybe Peter and the other disciples missed just at this time frame. The original, um, the original readers knew that Jesus had come. They'd heard the claims that he'd died and that he'd risen again. And so I think when they hear this, the, the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. I think there's some significant... Um, truth that they're picking up that maybe the disciples missed. Now, the disciples definitely got some of it. Here's, Here's what they got. This is Caesarea Philippi. If you're in Caesarea Philippi and that right there is the Temple of Pan, right over there is a spring that that wells up, a deep spring. Guess what it's called? The Gates of Hell. The Gates of Hell right over there because what they believed, or the Gates of Hades, what people believed was that the spirits of Pan would enter the underworld and come back out. 
And I think that there is a real strong visual connection that Jesus is making is in the midst of this pandemonium, I want you to know that all of this pandemonium doesn't win. This isn't stronger. The church, this isn't stronger than the church. But I also think that Jesus is tapping into some strong Old Testament language. Old Testament language when it talked about the gates of Hades or the gates of how it's sometimes translated Sheol. The, the, these gates actually represent kind of the high point of evil and death itself. So I think the early readers understood that what Jesus is saying is, yes, the church will be more powerful than this pandemonium. But Jesus himself, the one who rose from the dead, is unleashing this death-ending power in this new administration. Now, of course, at the time, and I think there's lots of evidence to suggest this, Peter and the disciples don't get this all just yet. All they're thinking is this, boom, <laughs> we were in the right place at the right time, right? Here's the Christ, the new king, the one who's been promised from the beginning of death, who will take death away completely. Man, we were in the right place at the right time. Here we are. We're his administrators. We're riding the wave on into the new kingdom. And I believe they were right. What they didn't understand was death would come crashing down around them to show that life and the death of Hades, sorry, death would come crashing around them to show them how powerful the life and this new administration that Jesus was setting up would be. Let's keep reading in verse 21. Because I think it shows, actually, just let me preface it a little bit. I think what we realize before we get, as we get into 21 is Jesus is now honing their understanding of who the Christ is, where they are in space and time, what that they should be looking forward to, what they should be hoping in, what they shouldn't be. Jesus says this, from that time, or well, Matthew says this, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. And on the third day, be raised. If you're listening carefully, will you read that? You hear one of the disciples in the background go, what? I mean, this was so far from what their popular concept of what the Christ was going to be like. There's no way they understood it. Peter didn't have a file in his filing cabinet that said suffering next to Christ. He believed the Christ was just going to come in and crush, not be crushed. And so Peter does what Ed, any head administrator would do in that situation, in verse 22, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he, Jesus, turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Jesus understands at this point something the disciples are still not quite getting. He's, he's, he's understanding that there is a gap between the kingdom inaugurated and the kingdom consummated. He has to take the crossbeam of a crucified criminal before he'll take the scepter of a ruling king. 
And so Jesus has some strong words for Peter. I don't think he's calling Peter Satan, but he's calling that idea that Peter had from Satan because we've already seen in the Gospel of Matthew that Satan has tempted Jesus with the idea that the kingdom can come without suffering. We see that in the temptations of Jesus. I think, in effect, what Jesus is saying is, Peter, stop it with your satanic ideas. Get behind me. And I think there is some debate on exactly what is meant there, but I think it's, there's a really good chance that what is meant is, Peter, get back to following me. Stop opposing me. And that's some really good news for you and me if we've become disoriented this year. Because Jesus didn't fire his head administrator because he got some things wrong. He invited him back into following him. Verse 24, then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Not only was the king going to take the cross beam of a crucified criminal before he took the scepter of a ruling king. He was calling his administrators and under-rulers to do the same thing. As we continue reading, Jesus says something very interesting. I want you to try and wrap your head around it. It's enigmatic, it's poetic, but try and, try and understand this. For whoever, in verse 25, would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? And what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. There is a life that you can live that seeks to stay alive and avoid suffering and death. Jesus calls that life death. There is a death that you can die for the sake of Jesus and for the gospel. That death, Jesus calls life. I don't think Jesus is talking about eternal salvation, although I think there's eternal salvation implications here. But I don't think that's what Jesus is talking about. I think that what is in focus here is Jesus says this, is this life that he created us for and that he's called us to live in the purpose that we were created for, the life of flourishing. If all you care about is staying alive, if all you care about is being safe, you're not really living. I think it's a timely word for us in COVID season because I think safety is wise. I think it's a good thing for us to be careful in the midst of a worldwide pandemic. But the scary part isn't that we would be safe and wise. The scary part is when safety becomes our only priority. That's when things get dangerous. That's when we die, in the words of Jesus here. Now, 
in, if the disciples at this point understood this, and there's lots of reason to think that they didn't fully grasp this, they soon would though, but at the time that this was happening and that Matthew was recording, there's good reason to believe they didn't understand it. But if they did, I imagine their hearts would have sunk. I mean, Jesus is saying, before you receive the honor of the kingdom, you're going to receive the shame of the cross. Before you receive the honor of victory, you're going to experience death. All of that excitement about riding the wave of the kingdom in was about to be disappointed. But if you are one of the first readers of Matthew, I think that this is going to be incredibly encouraging and helpful. This, in effect, is the roadmap for the first readers of Matthew because they've heard about the Messiah who came, but still the Romans are in power. They've heard that Jesus rose from the dead, but what in the world did he do? What was happening? I think what we see is that Peter, sorry, Matthew, Matthew has revealed something that people weren't expecting in the, in the plan of the Christ, the plan of the Messiah. They weren't expecting the suffering part. Now notice, Matthew doesn't say the king isn't going to return. He doesn't say he isn't going to crush political rebellion. He doesn't say he isn't ever going to rule on earth. He doesn't say that he isn't going to end death, that there isn't a literal kingdom going to be established on earth that will be in opposition to all evil politics that currently exist. All those things are still going to happen. Matthew doesn't say they aren't going to happen. What he says that's so unexpected is that before that stuff happens, the Christ will die and his administrators will suffer. Let me give you a very detailed map. You ready? Watch up here. Detailed map. Once there was no suffering. Then there was suffering. Then there will be a time where there is no suffering. What no one expected and what the readers of Matthew needed to hear and what you need to hear today is that no one expected the king would come and suffering would continue. Everyone expected that when the king arrived, suffering ends. What they didn't realize and what we realize now is that there is a short period of time, eternally speaking, when God set it up that the kingdom would break into suffering before it would end it. And that is where we are in 2020. And that is what we need to understand. No one foresaw that there would be a time that we could say, the king has come, the king is coming. No one foresaw that that could exist, that there was this in-between time, but it's where we live. No one foresaw that at the first coming, Jesus wouldn't end suffering and end death, but he didn't. You know what he did instead? He gave us something to suffer for. He gave us something to die for. Death is still here, but we have something to die for. Suffering is still here. And now we have something to suffer for. 2020 has been a tough year, guys. Let's pull out the map. 
Let's see where we are. There's been suffering and there's been death. There's been disorientation. We are in a time and a place where suffering and kingdom can coexist. It doesn't matter how much you try and leverage. It doesn't matter the potion you try to drink. It doesn't matter the mantra you try to say. Suffering continues to exist. The great hope that we have in this time is the purpose that we've been given by God of what we do now. That is coming. And Advent is about waiting waiting, waiting for that to come and longing for it to come and taking away all the things that would cloud our vision about that coming. It's about that, but it's about more than that. It's about taking that purpose that God has given us, something to live for, something to die for. It's about taking up our cross, denying ourselves and taking the crossbeam of a crucified criminal before we lay hold of that scepter of our king before us. Take a look at where we are in time and in space. We are surrounded by pandemonium. We've been given the message of hope. We are surrounded by hopeless people. We've been given the message of hope. We've been, we are surrounded by people who are suffering and dying. We have the message that is the end of suffering and dying. We believe that the gates of hell will not prevail against this message. We believe that the gates of hell will not prevail against this administration of the kingdom that we call the church. The end of death, that's something to die for. The end of suffering, that's something to suffer for. Now, maybe you're unconvinced. We've just come through an election year. Okay? And I can just, as I started looking at this passage, I thought to myself, Jesus, that is a terrible election platform. You want me to die? And here's the good news as I thought about that. The Lord Jesus didn't come trying to garner your vote because he's already got all the power. Jesus didn't need our vote to rise from the dead. Jesus won't need our vote to raise us from the dead. What we believe is that God is at work in the world to bring flourishing, even though death is here. And here's the crazy thing. He's not trying to get your vote. He's trying to involve you in what he's doing in the world. Did you hear me? Living is to join God in what he's doing. Living is to join the church with this amazing, death-defying message to die for the message that death will end, to suffer for the message that suffering will end, to deny ourselves, to take up our cross. In closing, let me say, let's take a look around, how we see what's going on around us. And I'll say it again, Merry Christmas. It's pandemonium out there. Merry Christmas. 
Has there ever been a Christmas in living memory for you that's so stark in, in the expectations that we have for it and yet the world that we live? You know, I keep the theory of it continues to be clear for me. It seems to me in such a dark year, Christmas should bright even, uh, shine even brighter. Advent should bright, shine even brighter as we look forward to the kingdom that's to come. Never has the world needed this message so much, guys. Never has the world needed so badly as it does today. Never has the, that means that the, the world has never needed the church to find its identity in the fact that we have this message like it's needed us to do it today. Of all the good things that we're doing, let's never forget their identity needs to be in the fact that we've been given the message that death ends, that suffering ends. And of all the wisdom that we have in hunkering down, and I believe there is some, and wearing masks, and I believe there is some, our great hope is that we have a king who will end things like COVID, who will end things like cancer, who will end things like war, who will end things like terrorism. That is our hope. And that is what our world needs to hear. And so take out your map and have a look at it. Where are you in space and time? Let me tell you where you are. You are perfectly positioned to live out the purpose for which you were created and the purpose for which you were recreated. You have been giving hope in the midst of a hopeless people. You have been giving the message of death's end to a bunch of people who are dying. You have been given life in the midst of pandemonium. I want you to take out your phone right now. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to think about a time later on today or perhaps early tomorrow when you can have five minutes to just pull over your car, metaphorically speaking, and have a look at the map of where you are in the world. For me, I always forget to do this. So this is just a set an alarm for yourself on when you can just be by yourself for a few moments and think about where you are in space and time. If you don't feel like doing this, you can just check a football score or something right now because I'm giving you permission to pull your phone out, okay? But if you want to do this, set an alarm for later on today when you can think about where am I in space and time. Here's some things that you could do. You do whatever you want to do. But here's some ideas. First, you could reread uh, Matthew 16, 13 and following. Get a sense of where you are in space of time. You could ask the question, what death and pandemonium is God burdening your heart with? And how might he be leading you to bring life and beauty and hope into that? Would it be by speaking or would it be by acting? Another thing you might want to do, I mean, I just really recommend you do this. Don't do it by yourself. Maybe text a friend, set up a Zoom call, call them right then and invite them into that journey that God's taking you down. And I would say don't do it by yourself. 
Uh, Jonathan's going to give you some great ideas about how Northway is already a part of doing that here. So there's some great opportunities for us to do that as a church right here and now. Lastly, here's something you might want to do. You just might want to memorize and the gates of hell will not prevail against it because here's what I've found. It's scary to take up your cross. It's scary to deny yourself. So you might need to hear, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it as you step into that pandemonium. What no one expected when Jesus came the first time was that the kingdom and death would coexist. What no one expected is that Jesus wasn't going to take away death right away. But Jesus didn't take away death at his first coming. He will at the second. But until then, he hasn't taken away death. He's given us something to die for. Let's close in prayer. God, these are heavy things that we're just really scratching the surface of as it it relates to who we are and what we do. But God, I just pray that your Holy Spirit would lead us and guide us in this. Would you change us? Would you make us the church of Jesus Christ? Would you make this message that the gates of hell will not prevail against that the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the resurrection of his saints at his coming, the end of death, the end of suffering, would you make that just form our identity? Would that pulse through our veins as the church of Jesus Christ? We pray that you would save us and use us to save those around us. Would you bring hope in the midst of the pandemonium? Amen.